Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. Exploration has not always been taken seriously as a way of doing science. And yet, in the late 20th century, biomedical researchers used it to answer a specific question. What happens to the human body at the limits of the extreme? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Vanessa Heggie talks about the history of biomedical research in extreme environments. Heggie is a fellow of the Institute for Global Innovation at the University of Birmingham. She's the author of Higher and Colder, A History of Extreme Physiology and Exploration. Vanessa Heggie, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. So in 1874, the French scientist Paul Baer enters a barometric chamber in Paris, and in atmospheric terms, he basically ascends Everest. Mm -hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us what happens and why that's important. Well, what happens is he successfully reaches, as he records it in his notebooks, the summit of Everest. Um, He takes with him a sparrow, a rat, a candle, um, the rat and the sparrow aren't very happy at being at this pressure. The rat vomits, the sparrow is shivering, um, and the candle goes out. And in fact, he records that he would have liked to have gone, as he puts it, even higher, but um, the pump that was powering, the steam pump that was powering the barometric chamber broke. And it's a it's a particularly significant moment, although not a very representative one, because it's it's often seen as the sort of birth of altitude physiology, this form of respiratory physiology that's particularly interested in in what happens to the body at high altitude and what is interesting is that the the subsequent generations of researchers have tended to actually go to mountains rather than rely on the barometric chamber itself to tell them about um, the effects of low barometric pressure on the human body. Uh, You mentioned that it's not uh, representative of the kind of science that happens after that and Mm -hmm. uh, what are the ways in which Bear's experiment did not accurately reflect what happens to a human body on the mountain. Mm-hmm. The, the major difference is, of course, that human bodies can acclimatize to a certain degree to different environments. Um, in very basic ways, when it gets hotter, we all start to sweat more, things like that. And mm. there are physiological responses to uh, low barometric pressure, to high altitude, um, that you generally only achieve over a period of time. Um, you don't get them if you're sitting in a barometric chamber fairly rapidly increasing the pressure. And of course, he's also breathing oxygen, which would mitigate any responses his body would have to um, the low barometric pressure. 
The other thing that's not the same, and this has also caused a problem for people researching this, is that he's not doing anything. He's mm. kind of sitting in a chair in the chamber yeah. waiting for the pressure to go up. He's not climbing up a mountain. He's not getting fatigued. He's not getting tired. He's not getting particularly cold. He's not experiencing that whole holistic experience of going up a mountain. You write that this focus on the lab versus the field is something that historians of science like us have done a lot mm -hmm. in the way that we think about the history of science, especially in the 20th century, and that there are real dangers in that kind of approach. What do you think the dangers are? I think the main danger is that we essentialize the two spaces, that instead of seeing a, a spectrum of scientific behaviors and scientific practices and experimental practices that happen in a range of different places, we tend to sort of come up with an ideal, a platonic ideal of the lab that does this sort of science and the field that does that sort of science. And then even when there are boundary zones or when we see different sorts of practices happening in the field and in the lab, we, we then feel the need to explain that or to justify it or to excuse it away because we've become accustomed to understanding these two spaces as, as it necessarily being in opposition to one another. When in fact, what many scientists, particularly in areas like respiratory physiology do is they move seamlessly between all of these spaces and they use them in all sorts of different ways and sometimes they collect data in one and sometimes they collect it in the other sometimes they analyze it here and sometimes they analyze it there and it's a it's a much more fluid set of space for mm. making truth about the world you were saying that in this kind of dichotomy biomedicine has rarely been kind of included in mm -hmm. what is actually a kind of renaissance in exploration science like people like you and me are we're interested in this field but that that has not really extended to people talking about biomedicine why do you think that is how oh, that's it's really interesting and i i'm not sure that i have a good explanation yet i think one of the reasons is that there are subtle differences between history of science and history of medicine. History of medicine perhaps has a more social history focus. History of science perhaps orientates more towards uh, science studies and philosophy of science as well. But I think one of the reasons is there is has been this quite strong narrative for the 20th century that has really focused on the big science of molecular biology and genetics. Mm. Um, that sort of reductive understanding of the body of breaking it down into its parts. And as a consequence, there has been a lot less attention to what have been presented as more old-fashioned sciences like physiology or like anatomy or zoology or areas like that. It's only been relatively recently that even topics like ecology or environmental science, the more holistic environmental understandings of the natural world have begun to be really seriously studied. And I think medicine is just a little bit further behind that in terms of its, its historical account, which still very much seems to focus on drugs and pharmaceuticals and genes and things like that, the, the small particles and not the, the holistic pictures. Mm. To get back to the story of Paul Bear, you say that there are people who begin to challenge this way of looking at altitude physiology. Uh, later on, guys like Angelo Mosso, am I? Mosso, yeah. Who talks about some of the some of the ways that the the science that he finds on the mountain is very different from that of Bear. What what was uh, Mosso able to to find? Well, one of his his main objections was that um, to the conclusion that Paul Bear had had come up with, which is this idea that you could alleviate mountain sickness by by breathing supplemental oxygen. And one of the things Mosso points out is that. Actually, by the by, the end of the nineteenth century, when he's he's working, um, portable oxygen systems were being used in medicine and were being used on mountains themselves. They were being tried out as a treatment for mountain sickness, uh, certainly in the Alps. And what he points out is that there are many cases in which oxygen doesn't help. 
you know, there are some classic examples of people who have what are some sort of altitude edemas or some sort of um, very dramatic response to altitude and who are given supplemental oxygen by doctors and who consequently die. And he particularly highlights the local knowledge of people who work routinely in the Alps. So people who were laying trails or were building huts or were working in these spaces and that their sort of absolute dismissal of oxygen as as completely useless, you know, alcohol was probably more help, thank you very much for going up the mountain. So he's he's looking very much at the sort of, okay, it's all very well that it may work in the lab, but actually out here in the field, there are these practical complications and a oxygen doesn't seem to work and b you know you have to take into consideration the fact that fatigue seems to have an effect and it's not it makes this sort of emphasis on the fact that it's quite a variable experience the mountain sickness that some days you yomp up the mountain and you feel fine and the next day you don't so it seems that it's a more complicated thing than just the lack of oxygen on the mountain it must also be what you've eaten or how well you've slept or what sort of mood you're in or the weather or there has to be some other mm. complicating factor because otherwise people's responses would always be standardized you know you always get to this particular altitude that particular rock and begin to feel the experience, the um, pressures of altitude and in fact that's not how people respond one of the things i really like about your discussion of mountain science and this kind of false dichotomy between the lab and the field is that you you kind of pull it back into these stories that we've all read about of, uh, you know, British mountaineers trying to ascend Everest Mm -hmm. and the oftentimes the way that the um, discussion of oxygen takes place in that ascent is that British mountaineers thought it was cheating to use oxygen on the mountain. And you say, you say, uh, actually, we're, we're not seeing it the right way. Could you, uh, could you talk about that? Oh, that's great. I mean, this this is actually the story that got me into researching this this whole topic in the first place, um, because I'd previously written a book about the history of sports medicine in Britain. Um, and one of the key things I found was this really persistent myth about British amateurism, mm. which was often used to say, oh, you know, British athletes were not interested in science. British doctors didn't help the sport that they were doing. You know, none of this existed in Britain. It was all sports medicine was completely retarded because of amateurism. And the more I dug, the more I found that just wasn't true, that actually Mm. there was plenty of science and medicine going on surrounding British sport. So when I came across this particular story about um, the use of oxygen, it just sort of it triggered something. I recognized that that story, that myth that was being told, and I wanted to check it out for myself. And the essence of it is that there there is some discussion about whether or not oxygen is fair and whether it's cheating. We're talking, um, these are the expeditions of the 1920s and the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, did Mallory bring oxygen up in 24? Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, both he okay. and Irving climbed to their deaths whilst wearing oxygen equipment. Mm. Um, and in fact, Irving was key to fixing the oxygen equipment on the mountain because it was um, extremely not fit for purpose, it turned out. He did some quite important adjustments to it that would... Uh, that at least made it feasible to carry it and the, the oxygen actually flowed rather than freezing up all the valves and things like that. So they, they were absolutely using it. I mean, every expedition of the British in the 20s and 30s either experimented with or took oxygen with it. So it was not something that was absent from the mountain. They would have rather climbed it without because there was always the sense that if it was physically possible to climb it without oxygen, eventually somebody would. And so that if you went up with oxygen, you were then still leaving open the final grand goal of doing it without. So that was that was a discussion they were having. But in terms of um, the scepticism about the oxygen, the fact that the mountaineers didn't like it, they didn't want to use it. When you actually get into the detail of the equipment, it was really heavy. Um, bits of it didn't work, like the valves that froze up because they were now being carried in very high mountains and not being used in Cambridge where they've been designed. You know, people like uh, Irving and Mallory had to adjust them on the mountainside. 
the masks froze over, they were really uncomfortable to wear. Um, and it turned out that the flow rate of oxygen which I believe is somewhere between two and four litres a minute, was nowhere near enough to compensate for the weight of the pack. So in fact, they probably Mm. weren't actually helping anybody climb because the extra weight they were carrying kind of cancelled out the extra oxygen they were managing to supply. So there was a a serious scientific debate about the use of these oxygen systems, sort of above and beyond any question of it being amateurism. And, you know, in the counterfactual history way, I think if they'd been presented with the oxygen kits of the 1950s that were so much lighter and so much more effective, actually we might have seen a lot less debate about whether or not to take oxygen in the first place. So, you know, so much of um, what I think about when I think about high altitude uh, research is, oh, well, people must have been interested in this because this is also the age of flight. And as planes are going higher and higher after the uh, First World War, uh, this becomes an issue that people are willing to spend money on. But I was really surprised reading your book that, in fact, these physiological experiments around altitude go way back. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the late 19th century expeditions to to figure out uh, mountain physiology? And, and then also, why would people care about this as a subject? Okay, so in terms of the late 19th century, you have several physiologists most i mean the ones i've written about mostly are the the european ones who are particularly interested in alpine physiology obviously so they're interested partly in a civilian way but also they're often part funded by the military so this is about marching troops across the mountains and how to Uh keep them healthy and fit and things like that there's also of course the boom in alpine climbing so there's a general much more leisure attitude and interest in in making these spaces healthy and safe for people to to travel through. Um, but you also do have uh, perhaps a slightly smaller number of researchers who are managing to make it out to um, South America and to places like that to have a look at Andean physiology. In that case, it's they're actually looking a little bit less at respiration and more at a phenomenon that's been spotted, which is the increase in red blood cells, mm. the uh, hematocrit increase that happens um, in response to um, an increase in altitude. So those are researchers who are studying not only visitors to those areas, but also indigenous populations at reasonable mid to high altitude. Um, And sometimes also animals, so llamas and things like that are having their blood sampled to sort of study this um, strange blood phenomenon. And the range of interest there is that that's particularly seen in a medical way as being a form of anemia. So there's some interest Mm -hmm. in the idea that there may be overlaps with um, anemic diseases of, of Western Europe. But some of this is just, it's, it looks like it's a much more, I don't know, basic interest in the, the, the fundamental functions of the human body. This is, I mean, that 19th century, that sort of mid to late 19th century is really a period where physiology as a science in its own right is expressing itself and is doing experimental work for the first time and is getting its first university chairs. And this is all part and parcel of that that real attempt to try and understand human bodies in perhaps a more systematic way, but a way that also includes doing field trials as well as then going back to the lab and looking at tiny samples of blood under the microscope. It was it was really interesting when you were talking about uh, the British and American expeditions on Everest, which start to focus on physiology in the mm-hmm. 60s, that there actually wasn't a lot of attention paid to Sherpa adaptations on the mountain. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would seem to me that within that kind of basic science model that Western scientists would be really interested in Sherpa physiology. Yeah, it would. And that and it came as a surprise to me too. Um, and of course, it has, it does have a knock-on consequence for uh, the study of respiratory physiology. And again, particularly for this question about um, the response of the blood to um, an increase in altitude. 
quite why it is that Sherpa didn't get involved in the research is not entirely clear to me, but I, uh, there are passing references by some of the European physiologists to the fact that they see the Sherpa as less civilized, I'm afraid, than the South American people that had been worked with, that they, they would be more resistant to medical interventions, that they would be a lot less likely to volunteer for clinical trials and things like that. And that's certainly true, I'd say, right the way through to the end of the 60s, people applying for funding and so on to try and do ECGs or things like that out um, in the Himalayan regions often get this feedback that it's going to be difficult for them to recruit local peoples because they won't, they're not as willing to take part in the, in the processes of science. It seems that some some of the early European expeditions did very occasionally include um, Sherpa and other porters um, in their studies. Um, it's not always clear who they used because mm. it's very there's very variable terminology for the different ethnic groups. And it's quite difficult sometimes to know if, if they're talking about Sherpa porters or if they're talking about um, other other ethnic groups in the area that are being studied. So certainly the, the Germans and particularly the um, some of the Nazi funded researchers were doing some work. But again, it's not immediately obvious who they were involving in those projects. And it was it was nowhere near as much as the work that was being done by North American and European researchers in association with South American researchers um, at a mid altitude and high altitude mm. in South America. One of the uh, physiologists you profile is the scientist uh, Mabel Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. who's trained at Oxford and uh, also trained in bacteriology and who's not really widely known. Why do you think uh, Fitzgerald is important? Well, she's, she's a very early example of a woman working in this field. And it's, it's one of those sort of classic stories of her marginalization in that she, she's out in America on this Rockefeller grant. She hears mm -hmm. that they're coming out to Pikes Peak to do some physiological research, writes and says, you know, you know me from Oxford, I'd like to be involved in your project. And the men of the team are just very unhappy about this. And there are some sort of I mean, they use morality as a bit of a cover. You know, is it appropriate for yeah. a young woman to be going up with them? Perhaps not. And instead, she goes off on this completely independent project, mostly at, at mid-altitude and slightly lower altitudes, to survey lung oxygen of um, and carbon dioxide of uh, miners and other communities. Um, and it's slightly ironic because she's doing that by herself. So she's now a solo woman going around this mountainous area, visiting quite hot heavily male-dominated communities in some cases and trying to persuade them to take uh, to give her... Uh, samples of the alveolar air and elsewhere. Um, but it turns out that the work that she does is quite seminal and it's the first time that these sorts of measurements have been made. And actually, you can sometimes still find her work being cited by papers published today as the original baseline for some of the data you have on what you expect to find in terms of the comparative oxygen and carbon dioxide concentrations in the lungs of people living at these particular altitudes. Mm, I um, just finished up doing some research in Australia a few months ago on uh, women's integration into um, some of the Australian Antarctic bases, per particularly Macquarie Island. Mm -hmm. And um, God, there are so many different reasons that people give for <laughs> keeping women off of Macquarie Island. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what you encountered in terms of the explanations that physiologists and scientists give for this kind of exclusion. Well, there's, there's a series of ways in which women are excluded. And the most obvious way is that for these sorts of expeditions, these scientific expeditions to genuinely extreme environments, there's always a requirement really that the people you take with that you have have proven themselves in those environments before. So not mm -hmm. only do they have to be scientists, they also have to be people who have climbed you know, in the high, high Himalaya or have gone to Antarctica. And that becomes kind of a self-reinforcing prophecy that it's very difficult for women to A, be trained in science and B, to have gone to these spaces. And your chances of finding a woman who's done both of them 
are very slim, certainly in the first half of the century. So there's sort of an automatic disqualification without even making much of an effort to disqualify them. But the other reasons are, I mean, generally, a lack of facilities is always used as an excuse. Yeah. You know, there's no ladies' toilets in Antarctica, and therefore it'd be, it would be unpleasant for them to come. There's also the line that women are a disruptive influence, that having one or two women, particularly in a large party of men, is going to cause emotional and personal disturbances to the men, and therefore it's better off just not taking them in the first place. And there are certainly some studies, some psychological studies in Antarctica that do suggest that things like letters from home are actually more psychologically disturbing than not having contact with your families. And those are the sorts of things that are used to justify um, not having women present at all, that a, a homogenous group of men is a, is a much more emotionally stable space for doing experiments and expeditions. And then finally, once these things are really being challenged, certainly into the 1970s under sort of um, equality legislation, there's also the line that's been used in a lot of medical science, which is that because women have periods, they're not stable animals to mm. study and therefore their their responses are not typical they're not normal they're cyclical and therefore um, they're much more unpredictable and they're much harder to study and as a as a as a laboratory animal basically um, and so that is sometimes used as a justification for not taking them huh. the idea is that you don't take them the first time you go you take nice normal solid men and then maybe if you have spare time later you'll look at you know the abnormal bodies which might be the young or the old or in this case it might be women yeah. so it's that that's their their bodily disturbance but also emotional disturbance are widely used as excuses and you well to be honest you can still find that in some Sometimes um, in the reports now, but it's very common through the 80s and even into the 1990s. I had uh, Emily Gibson on recently on the podcast to talk about airlines and essentially gender and air, mm -hmm. gender and um, commercial air flight in the 20th century. And she was saying that oftentimes air hostesses were used in advertising in, in the foreground of, let's say, an exotic locale mm -hmm. as a way of demonstrating that these exotic and semi-dangerous places were actually safe. Mm. I was thinking to myself, huh, I wonder if that is also, um, you know, spoken or not at work in the ways that men are looking at these extreme environment stations. If, if women, in other words, uh, symbolically are, are symbols of the domestic, then um, do we want them on our extreme environment outposts? I, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Oh, I think that's that's definitely part of it. I mean, there's those sort of phrases like it's an easy day for a lady. Mm. The idea that even a woman could do this does in some senses diminish it, I think, for the early explorers. But I think also, I mean, particularly particularly for the British, I would say, and, and for quite a lot of explorers, certainly in the Anglophone world up to the middle of the 20th century, these are, these are men who don't spend time with women in anything other than a domestic situation. Mm -hmm. They've gone to all male schools. They've quite often spent time working in the military. They've gone to Oxford or Cambridge, which are all male institutions. Their workplace is extraordinarily unlikely to have women, you know, working in anything other than very junior positions. So they, it might be quite difficult for them oh, to actually understand how to relate to women, even as a peer or, or as someone you could trust on a skidoo out in the middle of nowhere that they they have no map or, or um, example for those sorts of relationships and and it's very specifically because it's quite an elite group of upper class middle class men with science educations I think it's even more the case that they are in situations where the women in their lives have been their wives their mothers their nanny the cleaner and not and oh, not yeah. peers that they could work with that's very interesting you know, the other thing I, I thought found really interesting in your book was the degree to which the Harvard Fatigue Laboratory comes up. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about this laboratory? Not exactly the kind of place you would associate with extreme environment research. Um, how does that work? 
Sure. Well, the the important thing about the Harvard Fatigue Lab really was that it was this joint project between the medical school, which makes sense, but also the business school. Mm. Um, And its sort of principle was that it was supposed to be doing this research that was going to be useful in terms of understanding the labor market and in an economic sense, too, that part of their remit was you know, how long can you make a worker work before they get too tired and start making mistakes? I mean, that's yeah. the sort of project that they were working on. But also the the workers there were extremely canny men, or almost exclusively men, who were clearly quite good at doing the work that they were interested in and finding ways of funding it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, I think, I think sometimes we have to give credit for these sorts of things. They clearly have a particular interest. And to be able to frankly spin you know, a very expensive trip to high altitude in Peru or wherever that, you know, from money from an institute that's supposed to be about working conditions. But of course you can do it because you're going and you're studying mine workers at altitude and you're trying to understand the fatigue of that hard bodied labor at that particular altitude. And that is then useful for projects elsewhere. And other projects they would be doing were particularly into heat fatigue. So, you know, sharecroppers working in the burning sun of parts of the southern north america how does that work or dam workers at the hoover dam those sorts of projects like how hot can something be before it's really damaging to your workers how hard can these people work but of course that has an allied research interest with not just extreme physiology but also for mountaineering um, for other forms of extreme sport Um, they did research on marathon runners and so on so they Mm. were able to to use that particular research trend to explore very very broadly the limits of human physiology that in theory could then be related back to the workplace, but in some cases were much more um, abstract and basic physiology rather than applied physiology. A big part of your book is also focused on Antarctic research. And you say that there are parallels between the high altitude research um, and those that are going on in, in the polar regions. What are the links? Well, I mean, the obvious one is there are some interests in the particular environment itself. Um, it's quite cold in high places and it's fairly cold yeah. at the poles. So it's that sort of sort of very um, basic connection. The other connections um, tend to be much more to do with the practicalities of getting to these spaces. They are often geographically and politically sensitive. Certainly in the case of Antarctica, it's a lot easier to get there if you've got military support, because often it'll be the US Navy who are sailing you out there. They're fairly exclusive places of practice. You need a certain amount of um, political or financial clout to get to them. Mm. Um, But there are also spaces that become connected because of these practices of extreme physiology and because of that requirement I mentioned earlier to have experienced expedition members. Um, But quite often you would assume that if someone had managed to climb Everest, they were probably a fairly sturdy stock and therefore would be an appropriate person to take with you to the Antarctic. So even those, those are two quite different environments. And in fact, just because you can survive in the Antarctic doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good at altitude and vice versa. Um, When you're working with quite a small pool of people who have extreme environment experience and scientific credentials, sometimes there's a crossover caused by the same people, the same little clique of men going from space to space and linking them in that way. You you take up the the famous expedition of Robert Falcon Scott, where he's uh, in a race to the South Pole with Roald Amundsen, and he tragically dies uh, with his crew on their return from the South Pole in 1912. So much has been written about this set of events and people have connected Scott's death to the weather and to character and to hubris or crappy technology or animals. I mean, it's just <laughs> the list goes on and on. Um, but you have a kind of novel take on it. I was wondering if you could talk about why, what you think we've missed here. 
So yeah, there are, I mean, basically the the explorations of Scott, it's one of those historical topics that tells us more about our current time, I think, or, mm. or the author or the historian than it does necessarily about actual exploration um, in the early part of the 20th century. So I'm not sure what it says about me, that one of the things I focused on was the food that they took <laughs> for these particular expeditions. It's one of the things that's been, has been um, studied by contemporary physiologists that they've recreated, obviously these, these particular expeditions done the same treks. And one thing that comes up repeatedly in their findings was the um, the inadequacy of the ration packs that Scott and and other explorers mm. about the same time, to be honest, were taking with them, um, particularly when they were man hauling. That seems to be what makes the real difference. Amundsen is is dog sledding, which requires many fewer calories than actually pulling pulling yeah. the sledge yourself. And the, the ration packs they had were huge. You know, there were four thousand plus calories a day. It was a huge amount. But actually, it looks like you can burn seven to ten thousand doing that sort of God. work. So over an extended period of time, you will starve to death, even on on very high diet. And that's assuming that you manage to actually eat everything in your ration pack, which given that this is quite basic and we're talking about sticks of butter, biscuits, pemmican, it could still be quite challenging for you to actually manage to consume all of those calories. Um, And this is despite the fact that Scott actually commissioned his own research into nutrition during what became known as the worst journey in the world, which was the sort of side trip to Cape Crozier to get the um, emperor penguin eggs in the middle of winter. The three men on that journey, um, Cherry Garrard, uh, Wilson and Bowers, um, did an experiment with the basic food groups where, because at this point, nutritional knowledge was at a moment where we sort of knew the main parts of the diets. We knew there were proteins, fats and carbohydrates, but we hadn't yet really decided which of those was the real motive source of, of human energy. There was a lot of debate in the 19th century about whether it was fat or proteins. Um, and at the beginning of the 20th, mm. people were beginning to say, actually, maybe it's it's carbohydrates. And so their experiment was, was to start with a ration that had a huge amount of either fat, protein or carbs, because there was three of them, and to, to alter the rations they had until they till basically they stop feeling sick or they stop feeling hungry or they're able to do enough work. And the three of them, by adjusting their own rations as they did this, this epic trek to get eggs, basically conve- um, converged on the same sort of ratio, which is actually quite a, a high carb um, compared to what previous explorers had taken. It was relatively high carb uh, fats and slightly, perhaps slightly lower in the protein that, than would have been expected, I think, with the state of nutritional science at the time. So they sort of designed this particular proportion-based ration that was exactly the one that, that Scott took with him on with his team when they attempted the poll. So the, the proportions of it were probably right because they'd done this experiment, but the, the calorie deficit was still so, so enormous that it's difficult to understand how they could have survived. You uh, you make some really interesting links between this work, which from the outside people could say like, well, okay, this is just people climbing mountains and getting strange data back from it. But you you link it to, for example, the processes of acclimatization with uh, these other interests in adaptation that are being used, for example, in colonizing mm-hmm. parts of the world. And later on in your book, you talk about blood research and how the physiology as focused on blood can be used for many different purposes. I was wondering if you could talk about some of these links that you make. Okay. So, I mean, this is, I think, probably something that's going to be more core of a of future book because we're always looking to what the next project mm. is going to be. But one of the things that, that stood out to me was how some of this extreme physiology began to feed into genetic studies trying to understand human races. So the 20th century is supposed mm. to be this period in which sort of from the 40s onwards, the science of genetics and molecular biology understood races as being not specific fixed categories, but a sort of much more flexible, fluid way in which um, the human species worked. But actually, we've got quite a few of these physiologists and other researchers who are 
are talking about people whose bodies have been formed by the environment they're in that that living that your ancestors having come from a tropical environment means that you're you'll have a certain sort of body and you'll be a certain sort of person and that seems to be a much more fixed mm-hmm. understanding of how races work but then that raises the question about um particularly with more global movement and with um the colonial post-colonial period you know, can can white people, can temperate bodies survive in these other environments? And how do we best ensure that they do? And particularly, you know, immediately post two effectively world wars where European troops were having to fight in places that perhaps they haven't had to fight in before in environments they hadn't from from the extreme cold um, in Russia and elsewhere through to tropical battles in the Pacific and so on. There were a lot of questions then about not just settlers surviving in these spaces but also particularly how do you get troops up to full fighting ability and then deliver them to these these battlefields um, including naval battlefields in a way that um, ensures that your white troops and your non-white troops are going to be able to function even in these extreme environments so there's the beginning there are, there's a slight change i think in some of these research practices and thinking about well how do we learn from how indigenous people's mm-hmm. bodies have adapted is there is there anything from that that we can borrow to try and increase or do rapid acclimatization in some ways are there things that perhaps white bodies can't adapt to and then i mean there certainly are discussions about perhaps you know you just need to pick the right race for the right battlefield and maybe that's the way you do it but it's it's beginning to play into these discussions about a military efficiency basically in a in a much more globalized site of warfare in the 20th century mm. vanessa heggie thank you so much for talking with me okay thank you so much for the interview that's it for today the music was composed by zabrat Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.